Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are joined by Dr. Andrew Hartman of Illinois State University. Dr. Hartman received his PhD from the George Washington University. He has also authored two books, A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars, and Education in the Cold War, The Battle for the American School. He is currently working on his third book, titled Karl Marx in America. Today we sit down to discuss Karl Marx and the impact that he had on the American Civil War, and it might be more than you thought. I hope you enjoy this discussion and learn something about the impact that Karl Marx had on America. All right, Dr. Hartman, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yes, very excited. So today we're going to dig into Karl Marx and the Civil War. This is something uh, I presume many listeners probably don't have much of a background on. Uh, What actually brought you into studying Karl Marx and the Civil War? Um, Well, I have uh, been a reader of Karl Marx for many decades now, and uh, I was looking for um, a third uh, topic, a third book topic. I've written a couple of books um, and, you know, I wanted to choose something. Books take a lot of years to write. And so I wanted to choose something that um, would be personally very meaningful to me since um, I knew I'd be spending so much time with it. And so nobody has written a book about um, Karl Marx in America. And so what I'm doing is looking at how Americans have thought about Karl Marx from basically the middle of the 19th century all the way up to the present, Um, how many Americans have read and used Karl Marx for the purposes of like trying to understand the United States, trying to understand capitalism, trying to imagine a different world, but also how many people who have uh, thought about Karl Marx um, as a way, you know, as somebody whom they should oppose, whose ideas they should oppose, um, and whose ideas form like an antithesis to how they define an American political philosophy. Um, In any case, uh, in doing this research, um, I discovered, I mean, I should say I knew this, but perhaps I didn't know the extent of it that Karl Marx wrote a great deal about the United States. Um, And so the first chapter, which is a lengthy chapter, is all mostly about how Karl Marx and some of his associates who were living in the United States, how they thought about the United States, how Karl Marx um, formulated some of his most influential theories with the U.S. in mind, in particular, this U.S. Civil War. He wrote a great deal about the Civil War, both in terms of popular articles that he wrote for Um, European newspapers, and also especially in letters letters and correspondence he shared with uh, his longtime collaborator, Frederick Ingalls, but also several of his close friends. Um, These were known as the German 48ers. They were revolutionaries who fought on the barricades with Marx in Germany and Prussia in 1848, who were exiled, as was Marx. Marx and some of the others ended up in London for the rest of his life, um, but many of them, including men like August Willich and Joseph Wedemeyer, who became high-ranking 
high-ranking officials in the Union Army, they ended up in the United States, and he continued to correspond with them throughout the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to talk about Ingalls here in a minute, um, because as you mentioned, he has a great correspondence with Marx. Uh, yeah, and I think in America, Marx has kind of become a dirty word, right? Marxism is something that a lot of people don't want to touch. So I'm definitely excited for the book, and I want to talk more about that uh, towards the end here. Uh, but let's start off with this for, for our listeners. Who is Karl Marx? Um, a lot of us know Marxism. Uh, we might have heard of him, but as you mentioned, there's not books on him in the United States. We kind of keep our hands off of him in America. So what did he believe? Uh, obviously, he writes the Communist Manifesto. Maybe just kind of give us an overview of Marx and uh, kind of his ideology. Sure. Yeah, there's some great biographies of Marx for those interested. Um, happy to discuss those. But you know, he was born, as I said, in Prussia in the early 19th century, 1818. Um, his father had been a Jew, but had converted to Lutheranism because at that point in Prussia, you couldn't rise up the ranks of the professions as a Jew. And so, you know, Marx basically was raised essentially an atheist, um, very bright, of course, and ended up going to university and his um, his family um, invested a lot in him to go to university. And he ends up, even though they wanted him to be a lawyer or something that would earn money and respectability, he ends up getting a PhD in philosophy um, and had studied a lot of Hegel, who was kind of the most renowned German philosopher at the time. Um, and you know, so he's a philosopher, but he also starts to really think politically early in his life by the 18, like late 1830s, early 1840s. Um, and he ends up being an editor of a newspaper um, and gets more and more sort of radical. And, you know, at first he's not a communist. There weren't that many of those really yet, mm-hmm. but he's a very radical Democrat living in a despotic regime. Um a, a despotic authoritarian kingdom of Prussia and starts to um, write and edit articles that are very um, sort of pro-democracy, anti-authoritarian. Um, and this gets him in some trouble and he gets um, increasingly radical and he ends up living in exile, getting exiled, right? Um, and he spends a lot of time in various places, Um Paris, especially, and that's where he meets that's where he meets radicals all over from all over the world, um, including well-known French or Parisian socialists. He ends up spending some time in Belgium. Um, eventually, when the revolutions of 1848 break out across the continent, he ends up back in Germany um, fighting on behalf of the revolutionaries. But by this time, he and Ingalls, whom he met in Paris, had already authored the Communist Manifesto. This is, of course, authored and published in 1848. And so by then he's a communist. And so he's fighting these revolutions as a communist, as somebody who not only wants to overthrow the monarchy, but who also wants to um, overthrow capitalism. And so he's just at the even though capitalism, especially in a place like Russia, was sort of in its early, in its infancy, um, he's already very opposed to it. Um, those revolutions, of course, do not go well, um, and he ends up in exile again. 
this time in London where he um, lives the rest of his life until his death of 1883. Um, in the uh, 1850s, he's politically despondent. He's pessimistic. He doesn't think there's much opportunity for revolution. His family um, is living in grinding poverty. I mean, really, really bad poverty. Mm -hmm. um, several of his children die from a very young age because from diseases associated with urban poverty of the 19th century, especially in a place like London. So it's a rough time for him, but um, he continues to read and write um, and reflect upon the world. He hasn't really changed his views. He's just rather sort of enhanced his understanding and vision of capitalism. Um, at this point, he's very close to Frederick Engels. Engels, in fact, um, his father was a wealthy Prussian capitalist who owned a factory in Manchester. Engels ends up running the factory, so making quite a bit of money. And this allows Engels to, who continued to believe in the cause of Marx, to fund Marx. Um, so Marx was essentially funded by Engels in part for much of the 19th century. Um, I mean, 1850s into the 1860s. For, mu uh, for much of the 1850s, Marx also happened to earn a living writing for the New York Tribune. Um, so uh, this was Horace Greeley's magazine. Um, but Charles Dana, who was a radical abolitionist uh, newspaper man, ended up uh, in Europe uh, during to... to to uh, write about the 1848 revolutions and um, meets Marx, was told by everyone, this is the man he needs to meet and offers, his, offers him a job. A few years go by and Marx takes him up on that offer. And so during the 1850s, up until the Civil War, Marx wrote over 500 articles for the New York Tribune. The New York Tribune at this time period is the most widely read newspaper in the world. It had twice as many readers, subscribers as say the, um, the London Times, which was well read at the time. It is the main newspaper of the fledgling Republican Party in the United States. Um, and so, you know, to think about these connections, Marx was basically writing about uh, world affairs, European politics in particular for a, a Republican American audience. Um, and so people in the United States, Republicans especially, uh, free soilers become extremely um, familiar with Marx's ideas, uh, including Abraham Lincoln. Um, but, you know, in, for the most part in these articles, Marx is earning a living and he's writing about politics and he might sometimes have his own sort of political spin on things, but um, he's largely a reporter. So does Marx always have this interest in the United States or is this just kind of a job that he stumbles into? No. His whole life, he had interest in the United States. So um, in the 18, in the early 1840s, he read a number of the sort of popular travelogues of Europeans who had traveled to the United States, Charles Hamilton, uh, most famously um, Tocqueville. And he had read these and sort of formed ideas about democracy with the United States in mind because he was very... Um, very interested in like how it was that some form of political democracy had um, come to life in North America, in the United States, while at the same time um, there was slavery, um, while at the same time there was a sort of development of 
uh, of an economic system called cap that he came later to call capitalism that from his vantage point limited freedom and so he he always looked to the united states with a great deal of curiosity um and so this was especially true by the time you get to the u.s civil war um which i guess is uh probably where you want to spend a lot of our discussion yeah i want, I want us to, to work our way there and make sure our listeners have a good uh, understanding so he he's writing for the new york tribune he's living in london uh, and he's interested in America. And you mentioned the economic system. So if we're setting up the Civil War, right, we have this economic system of slavery in the South and free soil, free labor ideology in the North. What does he think about these two different uh, economic systems and specifically slavery? What are his views on that? Yeah, good question. So um, he hated slavery, uh, both from a moral perspective, you know, like an abolitionist would have, but probably more um, importantly, from his perspective, he believed that slavery was um, was like dead weight on a movement for democracy, as he defined it across the world in the United States and elsewhere. He really, by the time the U.S. Civil War happened, you know, this is uh, by the time uh, the South seceded. It had been 13 years since he had written and published the Communist Manifesto. And so he had long been sort of thinking about how um, the working class could achieve socialist revolution. And from his vantage point, it was impossible as long as there were these like large, um, large political pockets of enslaved labor. So he hated slavery. He thought that um, he had long thought that socialism might come to the United States because the working class, um, to some degree in the North at least, had political freedom. They could vote, and so he thought eventually they might vote. Um, they might vote to empower themselves, um, but he didn't think that this was possible. He didn't think the working class could effectively organize so long as such, so much of the national economy was, the national political system as well was dominated by. Um, slavery by enslavers. Um, and so once, you know, he was, he was extremely sort of taken with people like John Brown. Um, he truly believed that um, if there was going to be any kind of socialist revolution in the United States and or Europe, that there would have to be a war against slavery first. And so he, he really, really sort of regained his optimism about the world by paying close attention to the U.S. Civil War. And he wrote a lot about the Civil War, especially in the early years of the war, 1861, 1862, both for um, Die Press, which was a newspaper out of Austria, Vienna, and also especially in correspondence, like I said, that he had with, um, with Engels, but also with uh, his former comrades who were living in the United States and who um, were participating in the Civil War, particularly on the Western Front along the Mississippi. So if he views uh, slavery in this negative light, it sounds like to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that he did, he's not in that camp of people who think this is just a conflict that Americans kind of you know, bounce their way into, and it's the result of politicians fumbling. Uh, it sounds like this is something that he thought had to happen. Most certainly. He, you know, he always thought in very sort of um, large 
scale. He, th- he thought in terms of systems and he recognized, I think as much as anybody that uh, it would be impossible for the United States to exist in the long run, half slave, half free. And that he had a lot um, in common with Lincoln, except he, I would say Marx was even more forceful um, in his arguments about making the war a war of abolition. And so much of his early writings about the Civil War in the early years, um, especially in his private correspondence, he was highly critical of Lincoln. I mean, he was always a big fan of Lincoln, don't get me wrong, but he was highly critical of Lincoln for not immediately making it a war of abolition. He was highly critical of Lincoln for hiring um, generals like McClellan. Um, he was he was highly critical of Lincoln for, for example, firing Fremont um, in the West after Fremont um, tried to liberate the enslaved people in Missouri at the border state, which had remained loyal. Um, so he he really thought that the only way that the that the United States was going to win the Civil War was to make it a war of freedom, because Marx early on wrote about how the the most sort of powerful secret weapon of the union would be the enslaved themselves as a sort of like um, as a front within enemy behind enemy lines. Um, Like if they would sort of withhold their labor, if they understood that it was a war of liberation, um, that the Confederacy could not succeed. He was very adamant about that. Um, And he was also extremely optimistic and confident that that would eventually be the case. He didn't see any other, um, he didn't see any other result being possible. And in fact, Engels, who was really an expert on military history and military um, strategy, um, was much more pessimistic than Marx because he was just to focus too much in Marx's view on the sort of military strategy going on and was um, extremely pessimistic in the early years about the, the strategy, the sort of tactics, the um, overall uh, the, the overall objectives of Lincoln and the Union, whereas Marx just kept saying, just wait, just wait, this will become about a war of liberation and then there will be um, no turning back and, and the Union will be victorious. Um, and so, you know, that's a pretty interesting aspect about Marx's thoughts on the Civil War. I have my students read some of his early letters and essays, and they're they're kind of blown away about, when it comes to that, how spot on Marx was. So you mentioned that he's highly critical of Lincoln, McClellan, which I can't blame him for being critical of McClellan. Uh, and he has this wide... Um, array of material he writes early on in the war. So is that kind of what he's doing in the, let's say, first half of the war? Is he is his writings just critiquing Lincoln and McClellan? What does he think? I mean, you have a lot of Union blunders uh, throughout the yeah. war. So, so what is he writing there? And is he writing this for the Tribune as well? Is he critical yeah. of America openly? No. So once the war broke out, the Tribune... Um, uh, had to cut back on its staff pretty dramatically. Um, and it basically fired all of its foreign correspondence um, as it paid almost entirely all of its attention to the Civil War itself. So he lost his job with the Tribune when the Civil War broke out. But there was demand um, in Europe for uh, 
writings about the Civil War, and Marx was well known as a, as somebody who would um, be able to speak to that. Um, and so he was writing a lot in Europe, especially as I said in Austria. But um, his he was helping organize the British working class, also the Germans who were in exile in in England, to support the Union. So I'm. Um, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know, um, many in England were pretty well divided on over whom to support in the Civil War. The uh, wealthy, uh, Marx would have called them the aristocrats, but also the capitalists. Um, they, they wanted to support the Confederacy in part because so many of the large textile factories uh, in places like Manchester were thriving off of cheap um, cotton they were getting from the slave South, but also because, um, you know, these are not people who like democracy. Um, to their credit, the English working class was almost um, 100% solidly behind the union from the get-go and also were pro-abolition from the get-go. And e this was even true once many of them started like losing their jobs in the factories because um, they were unable to obtain uh, Southern cotton uh, as easily once the war really um, kind of got, reached its peak. And so Marx was a part of the, part of this whole movement to organize, to make sure that um, the elite in Britain would not uh, come to side with the Confederacy and, and that they would not do so knowing full well that the majority of uh, English, uh, especially all of the working class, um, supported the Union. So he was kind of a part of that. And so when he was writing for a European audience, he was um, he spoke in very powerful terms about Lincoln and about the Union cause. Um, and so a lot of his criticism, especially of Lincoln, was much more in his private correspondence. But it's interesting because he always even in his criticism was um, gave begrudging support to Lincoln. So, you know, what he liked about Lincoln is that he saw Lincoln as like a member of the working class and he saw the union cause, especially as he associated it with the abolition of slavery as a, as a sort of like working class cause. Now, like that might not have been the case, and historians, of course, have written differently since then, but um, this was something Marx truly believed in. And so um, he always had this begrudging respect for Lincoln, which I think only grew after the Emancipation Proclamation and after the war itself was made about slavery. Yeah, so if he's critical of Lincoln early on, uh, and then we get to the Battle of Antietam, tactical victory for the Union. They hold the field. Lincoln issues that Emancipation Proclamation. So I would have to assume this changes Marx's view on the war and on Lincoln, right? I'm, I mean, this has to be a turning point in Marx's mind. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. But it's interesting because by then, Marx, um, his writings on the Civil War um, are not nearly as voluminous. So almost all of Marx's writings on the Civil War are in 1861 and 1862. And this is just, you know, he got cut. So the Civil War basically interrupted a, a decades-long project he was doing in writing what became Capital. Now, Capital is published in 1867, volume one, I should say, for, and it's the only volume of Capital 
that was ever published in his lifetime. He had voluminous, um, just volume after volume of notebook. Um, and he had sort of scraped together volumes two and three or that angles edited and were published posthumously, but that was really his main goal for a very long time. And, you know, when he's writing for the Tribune, he's, he knows that he has to do this to earn a living, but he's always sort of concerned that he's taking time away from his main project, which is to write capital. And so he got, a, you know, his finances started improving a little bit and he um, was able to finish capital. But what I have found, and I'm not alone in this, but um, like a lot of serious Marx scholars have found this as well. Much of his main argument in capital, probably he wouldn't have come to the conclusions he did if he had not paid so much attention to the United States, in particular, the Civil War. So like, for example, as I said earlier, he truly believed that if slavery were abolished, the um, American working class would be um, in a much better position to organize for their own liberation. And so like soon after 1866, like the year after the war had ended, um, there were there were um, working class unions, especially on the East Coast in places like Baltimore and Philadelphia that um, had gotten militant and had won an eight-hour workday, right? This is a this is something that uh, workers had long struggled for, is that they could um, work for shorter days for the same pay, so they have more control over their time. And Marx had written a great deal, like the most famous chapter of Capital is called The Working Day. And it's, it's this sort of deep, really compelling analysis of how um, capitalism is a constant struggle over the time of the working class. Um, and, and he has all of these sort of like analyses and analogies to American slavery in this section and other sections of capital. Um, and so, you know, his most famous book that he overwrote and something that um, has been hugely influential across the 19th and 20th centuries I wouldn't have looked the same if he hadn't paid so much attention to the United States. And I think there are larger lessons to be drawn from this about um, the uh, sort of weird symbiotic relationship between the U.S. and Marxism. So Marx is, in a way, greatly influenced by capitalism, even though I feel like we tend to think in America there are two separate things, right? Like I said, Marxism, it's a big no-no in America. Um especially when we get to the Cold War. Uh, but Marxism really wouldn't exist without America and the Civil War. Is that correct? It might look different. Yeah, that's my main argument. Now, I, I don't want to overstate the case. Um, the main, His main resources for writing capital were he spent a lot of time in the British Library. I should say the, the reading room in the British Museum, um, just pouring over data from British capitalists and like the, the political system that helps support British capitalism. Um, but um, so that's probably like the key source of evidence, but his attention to the United States, especially the civil war is another key set of evidence um, that I don't think enough people have uh, paid attention to. And I mean, I, so, so yeah, I think you're right. It's, it should be noted that um, first and foremost, Marx was a philosopher, um, 
And he was a revolutionary, but his main thing was trying to understand capitalism. He spent most of his life just trying to understand capitalism. He was a theorist, a philosopher, an economist, if you will, who um, was out to understand and critique capitalism. And yes, he sort of foresaw something beyond capitalism. Part of his grandiose philosophy was that we as humans sort of transition between phases. And so he was trying to understand and trying to actually make happen this transition beyond capitalism. But the main thing he spent his life doing is trying to understand capitalism. Um, so yeah, like without he, Marxism is um, the degree to which people still read Marx and the, the degree to which some people still consider themselves Marxists is only true because we still have a capitalist system. If we didn't have capitalism, Marx would be pretty irrelevant to be sort of like, you know, he'd be one of these, um, I don't know, old school uh, pre-modern thinkers, you know, who we might still read in a philosophy class to understand the sort of trajectory of human thought, but we wouldn't read Marx with any attention to the present if, if we didn't live in a capitalist society still to this day. So America has a great impact on Marx. Uh, but what impact does Marx have on Americans during the war? Does he impact, especially Northern thinking, right? Because early on, um, a lot of people are just fighting to preserve the Union. They're not fighting for slavery. So does he have an impact on the public opinion? And does he have an impact on soldiers during the war as well? In that, his impact is pretty limited. Um, but I will say this, um, and I don't know, this isn't necessarily Marx's impact to some degree it is, but it's much more so just the sort of like impact of this larger group of people known as the German 48ers. So Marx was a leader of the German 48 revolution and one of the most foremost intellectual leaders of that movement. So many of these people, um, you know, they had all read the communist manifesto, for example. And so they're, their sort of worldview is in part shaped by Marx, but they helped shape this worldview as well. And so many of these German 48ers, they considered themselves socialists or communists. These were terms that were used interchangeably in the 19th century. And they came to the United States um, at first, you know, in exile with the hope that they would end up going back to Europe, in particular Prussia, to uh, wage the next round of the revolution. But that never happened. And in the process, and, you know, Europe got much, much more conservative and they never had that opportunity. But in the process, um, they grew to understand that they could really make a difference in the United States, in particular by getting involved in um, not just radical politics, like working class, labor union, communist socialist party stuff, which they did, but also in the effort to abolish slavery. These people were hardcore abolitionists. They hated slavery and they thought that um, they could, like, as, Mar as Marx thought, that they would never have um, a chance to help working people in the United States in general if a good chunk of those people were in chains. And so many of them joined the Union Army at the immediate at outset of the war um, with the intention of abolishing slavery. Most of them were in the West. Um, and so I think the West, one of the reasons why the Western Front 
played out so differently, especially early on than the Eastern Front. Um, just take away like military strategy and all that. It was because so many more of the soldiers were German 48ers or these types of people who hated slavery and had this moral vision, this moral cause that they were fighting for. Um, and I, I, I just I'm utterly convinced that's one of the reasons why they had more success in the West early on in the war. And um, the German 48ers had a lot to do with that. And they were the ones who were in close contact with Marx throughout. So it's kind of that Marxist ideology that the war needs to be about slavery, not a war to preserve the Union. And in the West, it was more of a war uh, about slavery than under McClellan in the East. So that's kind of um, why it plays out differently. I, th I think that's a great. Is that a thesis that you explored all in your book? I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We could also argue Grant too. I'm a big Grant fan, so we could. Throw <laughs> well, yeah, like you know, it's not the only reason, um, but I, I just think that's a major component of why the West looked differently early on. There were, mm -hmm. there were, uh, you know, and and Marx writes about this in kind of like acidic terms, like these New England types um, are too prim and proper to make the war about. <laughs> You know, whereas you had these, you know, he was very in this way, he was never nationalistic, but he kind of had this like pride in these Germans who were like revolutionaries and ready to wage a war of revolution against uh, for the abolition of slavery. Well, and so that's a great segue into my next question. So you say a war of revolution. Does he see this as maybe a continuation of or perhaps a second American revolution? Does he see this as you know, uh, maybe the first American revolution was necessary and that's a step towards um, where the working class needs to be. And does he see this as the next step, a continuation of that? Yeah, for sure. And he doesn't even just sort of limit it to thinking about it in American terms. He, he sees, so he would have, you know, he's a revolutionary and he is a careful historian who's read a lot. And so, you know, he understands, he, he early in his career wrote about the American revolution when he was trying to understand American democracy. And he saw it as like a necessary historical move. You know, he believed in progress, but he thought it was extremely limited in the sense that um, most people in the U S still remained unfree in their daily lives because they remained under the control of a labor system that didn't grant people a lot of freedom. Um, he was, you know, he would have thought of the French Revolution very similarly, like a necessary move that sort of expanded the realm of freedom, created some form of freedom or democracy or Republican rule in France, but was also very limited for the same reason. And it really, like, in his eyes, I think historians have confirmed this really was a bourgeois revolution in the sense that it empowered capitalists against the aristocracy, but eventually also against the working class. So it was like, a necessary move, but a limited move. Um, he's and you know that he saw the 1848 revolutions similarly, except they failed. The U.S. Civil War he saw as the next step in this global revolution, um, in the sense that, and you know he he paired it with the move against serfdom in Russia. You know, serf, uh, which was you know taking place at the same time. Uh, the abolition of serfdom in Russia was in 1861. And he thought like this type of um, chattel labor, this type of like unfree labor was coming to an end, which would help 
along the path to liberating the working class because you know he wrote a lot about how um the working class was um not empowered so long as half of them are branded by their skin color as chattel slaves that would drive down working class power in general all workers of all colors had to get together as, as like maybe one big free labor movement to actually make a difference and overcome capitalism. So yeah, he just saw this as a revolution, as yet another step towards um, where he thought people were going. If and we saw, haven't gotten we haven't gotten there yet, but yeah. well, if, if he hadn't, if he saw this as a piece of a global movement, did he feel maybe that once the war does end, that it doesn't go far enough? Does he think maybe the the U.S., specifically the North, should have taken it further? And if so, what would that have looked like? Well, yeah, so um, he exchanged a lot of letters in the first years of Reconstruction with some of these same people. And probably his closest friend in the United States was a man by the name of Joseph Wedemeyer, who was um, ended up rising to the ranks. I think a general, I could be wrong, it might have been a colonel, but he was in the Union Army in the West. He was in control of St. Louis for two years towards the end of the war. He was, um, and Joseph Wedemeyer was every bit as radical socialist communist as Marx was and wrote for the German press, the German socialist press in the whole, in like St. Louis area and wrote this amazing article in German, but I've read a translated version um, in 1866 about what had to happen next. And it's really this sort of radical critique of um or it's a radical analysis of reconstruction and so marx was at first pretty optimistic that reconstruction would be like a really important cog in the coming revolution or this global struggle um he was adamant that in order for that to happen the planter class the former slave owners had to be completely stripped of all property and that that property had to be redistributed, not just amongst the former enslaved people, but also amongst poor white people. Um, and that there had to be like a true sort of like empowerment of all working class people in the South. And that would be a key step. So, and he was, you know, he was a big fan of Thaddeus Stevens, who was also a big fan of Marx and some of these other radical Republicans. Um, and so at times during Reconstruction was optimistic, but he grew pretty cynical pretty early on because he didn't, he saw that that was not happening. And he was, he pretty early on in Reconstruction began to recognize that really what this was going to end up doing was consolidating the power of capital. So, you know, like with every revolution that happened during his lifetime, um, optimism is often replaced by pessimism. So I think, you know, like one of the greatest books written about reconstruction is W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, which is published in 1935 and is very much a Marxist analysis of the Civil War and reconstruction. And much of uh, Du Bois' thinking on matters has been confirmed by historians since then, like, such as Eric Foner, who wrote kind of the definitive modern book um, just called Reconstruction, right? And people like Marx and Du Bois and Foner have long made the case that, that was a, that's the real turning point in American history. Had 
we followed through on radical reconstruction. Had we um, stripped the Southern plantation owners, the slave power, as they would have called them before the Civil War, or they later called them the bourbon class, right? Had we stripped these people of their of their land, of their property, of their power, um, and you could have easily have made the case to do so on the basis of them being treasonous, um, that things might have looked a lot differently for American democracy, not just in the South, but across the whole country. Um, so uh, yeah, that, I mean, I think, you know, that was like what Marx wanted to see happen next and that it didn't was pretty disappointing to him. Not surprising, but pretty disappointing. Well, so you said he supports Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln's assassinated, Johnson takes over. Johnson really botches reconstruction. And you said that Marx wasn't a fan of his policy. So does he have specific correspondence about President Johnson? Does he talk about uh, all about his policies? What does he think of him? He does. And it's really a curious thing. So immediately upon Lincoln's assassination, Marx writes in a letter to Engels, this like glowing assessment of Johnson. He just, he didn't know much. He, he, it's clear he didn't know enough about Johnson. Um, he assumed that as like somebody who grew up as a poor white in the South, that he would hate the former class of slave owners and would want to punish them. And that's what Marx wanted to happen because he thought that that was a necessary step towards a fuller democracy. Um, he just assumed wrong. And I think like maybe a month after he wrote that letter and Johnson started like doing all the things that the Republicans <laughs> hated, um, <laughs> I, Marx wrote another letter to Engel said, I was wrong about Johnson. You know, let me paraphrase. He's an asshole. <laughs> so, um, he didn't know enough about Johnson and he just made some assumptions based on his you know, class position as a, as a young person, as, as in terms of what he would do as president following Lincoln. Um, so yeah, he had opinions about Johnson and, you know, Marx was, uh, I haven't even mentioned this, but he was kind of the spokesperson for a group known as the international working men's association later known as just the first international, like this is the first real international movement of socialists. It's headquartered in London, but there are a lot of members in the United States and other European countries as well. And they issued um, like in 1864, upon Lincoln's reelection, they issued this letter of congratulation that went public. And in fact, um, was read by Lincoln and then Lincoln um, extended thanks uh, to the organization. And they were like extremely praiseworthy of Lincoln they did the same um, type of thing in 1867 in which they were highly critical. And this is authored by Marx, highly critical of Johnson and making an argument for a completely different um, reconstruction policy. Um, so if he's critical of reconstruction, he feels like America kind of doesn't do what it should do uh, after the war. Does he see any hope in the 13th, uh, 14th, 15th amendments being passed uh, does he see any light in Ulysses S. Grant's presidency? Does he feel anything goes right after the war? Um, not tons, but again, you know, this is like a time in which he becomes consumed by publication of capital and 
consumed with things elsewhere in the world. And so um, he does sort of like lose attention when it comes to paying attention. He, he quits paying so much attention to the United States. And so other than a couple of things about reconstruction, really from um, eight, like the 1867 up until his death in 1886, um, he's not writing as much about the United States. A lot's happening in Europe at the time. He's writing a great deal about things like the Paris Commune of 1871. Um, he starts paying a lot of attention to events in Russia towards the end of his life because there's this whole commune movement in Russia that he's very interested in and curious about. Um, and I think his interest in Russia was aided by the fact that um, capital was translated into Russia and it sold better there than almost anywhere else. So, you know, like there's a bit of vanity there. Why are they so interested <laughs> in me? Maybe I should be interested in them. Um, so, you know, he continues to keep up correspondence with some of his friends in the United States, um, but he doesn't write publicly much about the United States anymore. Um, and, you know, he, as he gets um, older, he's having health issues, his uh, public, he's just not publishing as much in general. Um, but what's interesting is um, he might be losing interest in the United States, but the United States is not losing interest in him. So, you know, obviously a lot of Americans knew who he was in the 1850s when he's writing for the Tribune, but he's still at this point, not like, a world famous person. We don't, uh, people anywhere, except for maybe small pockets of people who were uh, German 48ers or whatever, don't really consider him like the master theorist of communism or anything like that yet. But this begins to change as more and more people start reading Capital. Um, and, and then like the press uh, starts to treat him as a scary person and this just enhances his popularity so like for example the paris commune which happens in 1871 um, has nothing to do with marx it has nothing to do with the international which marx was still a member of a, a high-ranking official and yet the british and american press blame marx and the international for the paris Com commune some American reporters after this start traveling to London to interview Marx. And so in, there's a sort of uptick in American interest in him. And at the same time, then by the 1870s, there start to be political parties that um, start to organize around Marx's ideas. So right at the time when he's paying less attention to the United States, people in the United States finally start paying a lot of attention to him. And that just kind of grew as the years went on. What is it if, if Marx is supportive of the Union and of the North um, during the war, what is it about Marx then after the war that changes America's opinion on him? Because it seems like Americans should have had a rather positive outlook on him since he did support them during the war. So what makes him such a bad guy? <laughs> yeah, well, the Americans, even people who uh, were very pro-union, are also many of them pro-capitalism, pro the American system. And Marx's ideas uh, were anti-capitalism and could be interpreted as anti-the American system from the from early on. And so 
with each wave of interest in Marx, like I think there there were there have been uh, like four booms in terms of like attention to Marx in the United States. The first is the Gilded Age, and mostly this is by people who are involved in the various radical labor movements and the socialist parties of that period. And they're, you know, like times were very tough during this time period for many, many working class people. And they're looking for ways to change their lives, ways to change the system. And in that context, Marx becomes one, not, not the only, but one of the leading theorists of a way to change the system. And the others, the 1930s and the 1960s, and I would argue we're in one of these sort of boom periods now. But what we see is with every increase in interest amongst people who want to read Marx to change our political system, to change our economic system, to have some sort of revolution, there's a also in response to that, in reaction to that, a great deal of interest by conservatives, by liberals, by people who don't want socialism, and by people who increasingly are critical of Marx. And Marx, in this sense, often gets wrapped up in the various red scares, right, that have happened across American history. And so I would make the case that one of the first red scares, maybe the first red scare, is right after the Paris Commune. It's not a major one, but there's a great deal of attention paid to the problem of communards, as they were called, in relation to Paris. You get another one after, for example, the Haymarket riot in Chicago in 1886, and people link Marx's ideas to that as well. And then, of course, the big red scares after World War I and after World War II and the early Cold War, uh, Marx's ideas are linked to all of this. And so, and oftentimes they're linked to it because the people who are organizing on behalf, um, organizing around Marx's ideas, they're the ones that uh, reactionary Americans want to crush. So there's this, uh, this sort of symbiotic relationship between uh, the popularity of Marx's ideas are amongst like, you know, socialist or working class people who want to change the American system and those who want to crush those movements. And it sounded like you mentioned Thaddeus Stevens, Lincoln was familiar with Marx, um, several people throughout this discussion that were either pro-Marx or at least were aware of him, aware of his writings. Uh, so it sounds like this fear of Marx. You don't want to touch him. You don't want to be near him. This develops after the war, something that people during the war were perfectly fine reading him, being friends with him. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, he was prior to the war just known as a really sort of smart, knowledgeable uh, journalist, somebody who knew a lot about European politics and affairs, and that would help um, educated uh Republican Americans learn about the world. Um, during the Civil War, the people who are still paying attention to Marx happened to be um, the 48ers, people who uh, believed in Marx, that believe, had a similar worldview to Marx. Um, it's really later, once you get some of these um, movements that start organizing around Marx's ideas that negative attention comes to Marx as well. Um, and, you know, this is the reason why um, Marx becomes such an important piece of radical organizing in the U.S. and elsewhere 
because his ideas resonate. And so his writings, especially Capital, but many of his other writings began to be sort of translated and printed in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, and they become like part of organizing efforts. And so it becomes obvious to everybody that like um, his ideas are important to these movements. And if you hate these movements, then you're going to hate Marx. Yeah. And, and we focus a lot here on Marx and the Civil War. Obviously, that's the scope of this podcast. But uh, I want to talk a bit about your book. Um, so your book is not going to just focus on the Civil War as well, right? This is going to focus on Marx as a whole. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, your book that you have coming up. Yeah, so I'm in the midst of writing the final chapter. So hopefully it'll be on shelves or Amazon or whatever in a year or two. So um, it starts with uh, like Marx's early life and how thinking about the United States shaped his understanding of the world. It pauses in that first chapter to do an in-depth analysis of Marx's writings on the Civil War and also how his attention to the Civil War shaped uh, his ideas, especially as we find them in Capital. And then it's just a chronological chapter-by-chapter look at how um, Americans have read about Marx, thought about Marx, been inspired by Marx, uh, been frightened by Marx, wanted to crush Marx's ideas um, with chapters like on the Gilded Age labor movement, with chapters on like uh, World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution and what that did. Uh, a couple of chapters on the 1930s, because that's the most important period um, in the history of Marx reception in the United States. Um, and then we have, you know, like the the conservative backlash of the 50s. You have the 60s when a, a new round of young uh, radical activists discover Marx and read him in di very different ways than, say, people did in the 1930s. And then Marx kind of like in the what I want to call the Reagan period kind of disappears amongst a lot of people, but remains read in colleges and acad by academics, right? And that kind of leads us up to now where a growing number of people are again starting to read Marx, but also there's this weird uh, increased enhanced fear of Marx, um, people blaming things like uh, critical race theory on Marx. Like, it, you know, like for example, there's a new book out by Mark Levin, a right-wing radio personality called American Marxism, and kind of anything he doesn't like that's even mildly progressive, he links to Marx or Marxism, which is a common uh, sort of Red Scare thread going back all the way to World War I. So yeah, it's, it's a chronological look at that. And, um, you know, I have a couple of main arguments. One is that um, Marx is extremely relevant to American history. And so whether you call yourself a Marxist or not, I think that anybody interested in U.S. history should also uh, be interested in the history of Karl Marx and his ideas. Another is that there are different ways to read, the, read Marx. And I think that a common thread throughout American history of reading Marx as a as a Democrat, small d, as somebody who wanted to enhance the power of more people in the sense that uh, the majority of us in a capitalist system work for wages, work for a living, sell our, in, in Marx's term, sell our labor in order to survive. And in doing so, we give up huge chunks of our life, our time, our bodies to the system. 
And I think there's something inherently unfree about that. I agree with Marx about that. And I think that if we took those ideas seriously, we could really look to improve the lives of everybody. Um, and so it's not only an, a historical analysis, but also, um, I don't want to say polemical because I don't write in those terms, but it's it's kind of a plea, like we should uh, take some of these ideas seriously all these years later. There's plenty we can leave behind. I definitely don't um, want to um, embrace any aspect of the Soviet Union necessarily, um, which I would argue um, was about much more than just Marx's ideas. But there's this sort of kernel of truth in Marx's theory, much of which he gained from paying attention to the U.S. Civil War about uh, the working day, about our time, that would enhance our freedom. And so, um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. It's what I've been spending a few years doing. So maybe if we embrace that Thaddeus Stevens mindset of being open to Marx uh, and some of his ideas instead of being afraid of even mentioning his name. <laughs> Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I think it's like, I think it's entirely appropriate to sort of um, be open to plenty of American traditions that people like Thaddeus Stevens were well-grounded in, but also embrace um, certain aspects of Marx. I, I consider Marx like, I think maybe that's one of my goals is to, get us to think about him in the sort of pantheon of great American radical thinkers, not just um, this scary German communist. <laughs> Is there a working title for this book so far? Yeah, it's pretty original. Karl Marx in America. <laughs> Karl Marx in America. I want to make sure that any listeners know so they can keep an eye out. Um, and we'll make sure to let them know when it's, when it's officially out. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with uh, on Karl Marx and the Civil War? Anything you'd like to share? No, I, I mean, we've been talking for an hour, so I think I've shared a lot, um, but I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Is there uh, anything else you'd like to share with the listeners, maybe a way they could contact you or any other works that you would like to share with them? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, and so that's a good way to find me, um, Hartman Andrew. Uh, I had to reverse it because somebody had Andrew Hartman <laughs> I got on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, my last book is a history of the culture wars. It's called a war for the soul of America. There are two, there's a second edition out now um, that accounts for that history during the Trump years. I know that the, that's been a topic um, that of persistent interest and relevance. So if people are interested in that, I'd tell you to check that out. Great. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us for this discussion with Dr. Andrew Hartman of Illinois State University about Karl Marx and the Civil War. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something about Marx's impact on America. I also hope you will join us next week as we sit down with Dr. Jonathan White of Christopher Newport University to discuss African Americans and Abraham Lincoln. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share to help the podcast grow, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.